Thank you for downloading our podcast or watching our sermon series. Reformed churches are sometimes accused of being rather stoic in their worship. Some might accuse Reformed Church as being one that quenches the Holy Spirit. Is this claim really fair? Do Reformed people really desire to quench the Holy Spirit? Why do Reformed people have such a high view of the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments? Does the Lord really work through such means? Please join us and be edified as we consider the Lord building His church through the means of grace in our series titled, Why Such Means? Well, last time when we looked at the Belgic Confession and the sacraments, it almost sounded as if the sacraments are mere memorials. Uh, we could certainly see that as part of our sacramental theology, and I, I think it's important I say part of our sacramental theology, meaning that's not all of it. Uh, there certainly is an element where we remember, we think about, we contemplate. Uh, but this week, I, I wanted to get at more where the Belgic Confession goes into the reality that it's not just a mere memorial where it's some sentimental sign, but it actually is something that the Lord uses. And so certainly it's that seal on the envelope testifying to the validity of God's promise, but there's also a reality that the Lord works in the power of His Spirit, even in baptism. And I know sometimes we get uneasy when we hear that, and I know I hear that at Synod as well, where people say, well, this is baptismal regeneration. I do not say that everyone who is baptized is necessarily regenerate. What I am saying is that as a baptism is a sacramental sign, is that reminder and that reality that the Lord is the one who does nourish us in his spirit by this sign. And so when we look at this, we might say, well, then how can we be assured that these signs certainly do nourish our faith? Why, why would we utilize or use these sacraments being assured that they actually accomplish the Lord's intended goal? And so as we look at this, we'll see first sanctified, basically taking Ephesians 5, verse 26. So we'll do sanctified, cleansed, and then that washing by the word and spirit, or sanctified, cleansed, and word and spirit. So let's begin then with the sanctified. Now the Belgic Confession, I called to our attention last time the language where it says the Lord is mindful of our crudeness and weakness. Uh, think about that language. That really puts us in our place, doesn't it? It, it reminds us of how simple we are, how crude we are, uh, how we need something tangible to really believe something. So our natural inclination in the language of this is that we doubt the word of God. We don't think that it really will be accomplished as we considered with the sign of circumcision, with Abram doubting the promise of God, taking upon himself to establish the Lord's promise uh, by uh, utilizing Hagar as a surrogate mother and then going on to try and bring about the promise only to find out that's a complete misunderstanding and God does not need our help uh, in the sense that he needs our plan or our meddling to bring about his redemptive purpose. The Lord will use us as he sees fit. We do not make this happen by our own strength. But the Belgic goes on and wants us to understand that when we consider this sacraments, we, we learn and, and understand that, that the Lord is teaching us we're set apart. His gospel is sure. His word of promise is sure. 
And so when we think about the nature of what's going on here in this sanctification that's mentioned in Ephesians 5, verse 26. Now again, this is in the context of the husband and the wife and how they relate to Christ and the church. Uh, this is tied to that union we have in Christ. But notice that we, we have in the midst of this, in this call for husbands and wives to live out their particular offices or duties before the Lord, that it says he might sanctify her, refer, referring to the church. Now, the sanctifying is something important. Uh, we have a promise that Paul gives to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, of the promise that the Lord will sanctify uh, you completely that he's saying to this church. So it means that what we taste in this life in the power of the Spirit, hopefully as we grow in grace, and, and of course it's going to be sort of the ups and downs and the different struggles in the Christian life, but as we're ultimately in a trajectory going and growing in grace, we arrive at the completion of it. And so while it's progressive in this age, we're exhorted to fight the good fight, we know at the end of the age we're going to arrive and a completeness, a glorification. And so when Paul speaks of this to the Thessalonian church, he's reminding them that continuing to persevere in the faith is not a waste of their time because it's ending at the very consummate glory. God will glorify us and fulfill his purpose. Sometimes we may doubt it. We might read the news. We might go through particular seasons in life. But that's the assurance the apostle Paul gives us. No matter what we face, our victory is secured. Going on where we have in 2 Timothy 2.21, where Paul gives an exhortation uh, for us to sanctify ourselves or cleanse ourselves and being assured that we will be holy and sanctified unto the Lord. And so as Paul writes us to Timothy, it's that reminder of what it means to fight the good fight. And so this sanctification is that progressive conforming unto the Lord. And, and we're only doing this in the power of the Spirit. And so again, this is one of those sort of uh, mysteries that, that I would say, I don't want to use that in Eastern Orthodox sense in the sense that we can't comprehend it, um, in the sense that it's just something that's really mystical. But mystery in the sense that it's beyond our mind's ability to grasp what God intends. So what I mean by that is on the one hand, the Lord assures us he will sanctify us, as we heard uh, to the Thessalonian church. So the Lord's at work in the power of his spirit. But at the same time, we're called to work in the power of the spirit to conform to Christ. And so when, when we look at this, it's important with this Ephesian church, as Paul writes it, where is he bringing us? Well, he presents the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or without any blemish. And so the purpose of where Paul's going is he's saying, live out these roles consciously. Understand that as you desire to live out these roles, you're doing it as the Spirit is at work in you. And now, like he's saying to the Thessalonian church, what he begins in the sanctifying process ends in the ultimate glory. Uh, this splendor is basically... Uh, dressing in, in honor. It's a nice presentation. Uh, it'd be like a, a, a black tie affair or, or an event uh, where you dress up very nicely and look very classy and you present your best. That's the intention of this language. 
Uh, Paul uses it to mock the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 4.10, uh, that basically they hold themselves in honor or uh, without blemish, and that they put down the apostles. And so Paul's presenting it that they put themselves up in this prestigious place while failing to understand who truly brings them the gospel. Going on without spot or wrinkle. This again would be a garment that, well, maybe you're not as sloppy as me, but I've done it before. But you take a garment just out of the closet and it's all wrinkled and messy and you just kind of wet it down and try and you know, slide your hands over it. That's the opposite of what Paul's speaking of here. He's speaking of a garment that is actually prepared for the proper event, right? So you've had it pressed. You pick it up from the dry cleaner, and it's, it's perfect. It's, it's pressed exactly as it's supposed to be pressed, and you're making a great impression as you show up. And so this is a point of where the Apostle Paul is, is saying that Christ is going to bring the church, that the church is going to be clothed in this glorious uh, garment, you know, the white garment. There's not going to be any spot, any wrinkle in this garment. Uh, this too would be making a reference most likely back to the priestly order. Uh, you can think of the uh, presentation of the vision in Zechariah 3 where Satan accuses Joshua the high priest of having stained garments, right? He's compromising uh, the call uh, that he's supposed to emulate and live out, and he's not doing this as he ought. And so as he's uh, in this stained garment, he slumps down and the angel of the Lord says, I'll take this uh, upon myself. What Paul's speaking of here in the Ephesian church is he's saying that in this process of sanctification, we need to see the big picture. That when, when we look at living out the gospel for the glory of Christ, he wants us to think about what the Lord is doing. He's bringing us to the place of perfection. The place where we shed this old garment, this old skin, this old clothing that we're in right now, you know, the jars of clay that he says in 2 Corinthians, with the glory of the Spirit within us, calling us to see that we're moving to a place of ultimate glorification, dressed in the Lord's glory. That, that there is no stain, no blemish. That's the assurance that he's giving to us. And so he's going to sanctify us. And this is where you're using this, this washing, this, this cleansing that we're going to get into in a moment here. And it's important that with this picture of the sanctification moving to glory, as we're setting the stage to the next point, what does the Belgic tell us? That they are not empty or hollow signs to fool and deceive us. Something very important. We don't want to say that God implements these signs because they're meaningless. This picture of being baptized is not just a picture of regeneration. So often we can say, well, baptism is just regeneration. Lord's Supper is a Passover. There's elements of truth in that, but that's not the full picture. I mean, what is baptism fully communicating? Certainly it's communicating the work of the Spirit. Certainly it's a communication of uh, regeneration, but it's a communication of passing down into death an emerging triumphant in life. Red Sea, flood, uh, we think of those events. We, we can think of the Spirit cleansing our hearts as it's being symbolized in this, in the power of the Lord. And so in, in terms of what the Belgic's teaching us, it's compelling us and calling us to think about what God is doing, think about the implications of that, 
It's compelling us, calling us, exhorting us to think about the reality of what God's doing in the sacrament of baptism and the Lord's Supper, how we are set apart, communing with God, set apart as his redeemed people. And so the Lord really is communicating a picture, a, a picture of the gospel in these signs. So let's move on then to cleansed. Uh, the next major word that we find in verse 26, we have sanctify. Now we move to cleansed. This cleanse is again that the Lord, as a Belgic confession tells us, he's an, he enables us to understand by his word what he does inwardly in our hearts, confirming in us the salvation he imparts to us. That's strong language. Now, some people appeal to that and say, see, the Belgic Confession had in mind baptismal regeneration, but that's not what the Belgic's saying. The Belgic's teaching us that the Lord really is conferring and teaching to us and working in our hearts in the power of the Spirit. Now, people will say, well, how does the Lord work? When does the Lord work? When does this take root? Well, the answer is we don't know, right? John 3, Spirit blows where the Spirit wishes. I don't know when the Lord works through the Lord's Supper. I don't know when the Lord works through the preaching of the gospel. However, I know he promises to use these as his primary means for us to grow. And so I need to be assured that as he gives us these signs and as we contemplate the reality of the gospel, the Lord is conferring and strengthening our faith. So when we see a child being baptized, what are we thinking? This is the Lord setting his covenant community apart. There's a child coming into our, our community that uh, we need to nurture and pray for and encourage the gospel and to desire it. There's a flip side of this too, isn't there? Because if the child doesn't grow up and embrace the faith, I mean, there's that warning. Being washed away like, like the Egyptians in the sea. And so this is where the sacraments are doing that twofold communication of what the gospel communicates. Embrace Christ. Nothing to worry about. Turn away from Christ. You have a lot to worry about. Uh, because Judgment Day is not going to be a very glorious day. And I don't know how to say that any clearer than that. That's the reality of what the Apostle Paul is exhorting the church to see. What the Belgic Confession is reminding us to see. That these signs are testifying to the truthfulness and communicating to us visibly the gospel. The, the word of God that's visibly presented to us. Now, we think about the context of this passage, and we look at Ephesians 5, verse 26, sanctified, cleansed. What, what does it mean to, to live this out? Because there, there's something very profound that's being communicated here. I'm pretty sure I've communicated this before, but Ephesians 5 is a radical overturning of the fall. I mean radical overturning. Because when you hear the curse in Genesis 3.16, there's a problem that happens after the fall of humanity. Adam and Eve were quite content to work in the Garden of Eden. The language used, naked and unashamed. In other words, the, the metaphor there is they had nothing to hide. They, there are no secrets. Everything was right there. They're, they're just completely in unity working together for the honor and glory of the Lord, of one mind, of one focus. Once we have the fall, they're naked and ashamed, which tells us now that there is a radical change the moment they eat of the fruit. 
Now, we might say, well, how bad is that? I mean, really. But when you hear the Lord speak about the curse, he says in Genesis 3, verse 16, your desire, the ESV translates, will be contrary, which I actually like that translation. It captures the essence of what the Hebrew is getting at. Your desire will be contrary to your husband. So this is saying now that, that the wife is not going to want to do what the husband desires. There, there's not going to be unity there. And then we, we have the, the tragedy, and he will rule over you. Now we might say, well, what's the problem with that? Isn't the husband the king? Isn't he the one who's a ruler? But what you have now is you have a power struggle. You have the wife who wants to rule the husband. The husband isn't ruling his wife in a kingly, loving role, but in a domineering way, in a way of wanting to, to control her, in a way of trying to do whatever he can to break her, and she's doing the same to her husband. So in terms of what was created as good has now been completely radically broken. It's reversed. There's no longer any unity. So when you turn to Ephesians 5, and you hear what the Apostle Paul is saying for husbands and wives, this is radical. Genesis 3.16, your desire is to be contrary to your husband. You want to rule over him. That's not submission. That's not saying I want to honor this guy. I love this guy. I see him coming uh, by the providence of God. No, this is I, I want to break this guy. I want to control him. I want to rule over him. But he's saying fight against it in the power of the Spirit. Now the world, you know, you think about the world today and they hear this and whoa, whoa. <laughs> You're going to tell a woman to submit. This is just pure abuse that's going on here. This is terrible. But notice how the Apostle Paul then goes on to speak to husbands. Because it's not just the wife just submits, deal with it, that's it. Husband does whatever he wants and you deal with it. There's also a radical overturning. Because in Genesis 3.16, he will rule over you, right? So this is a domineering, controlling uh, brutal potential. And you go on, you find Lamech, and you find the abuse of what goes on there. And it's pretty horrible. So what you have here now is it's husbands love your wives. And so now it's saying that basically the husband has to look upon his wife as an asset, as a gift from God, and actually love her, care for her, be tender to her, and see her as one that the Lord has given him. So now with the work of this marriage, it's going back to what God has intended and what Paul's saying. And he's saying in the midst of this that, that as you live this out, you're building your home and the promises of the gospel, and you're living out what God would intend for us to do. It's not saying this is necessarily easy, but it's saying it's the reality of where we call ourselves, where do we challenge ourselves, you know? Husbands get frustrated at their wives. It's a question of, well, how am I loving her? Wife gets frustrated with her husband. Well, how am I submitting to him, right? And so instead of trying to go against the other partner, it's asking yourself, how am I living out my role for the glory of God first and foremost? Now, as I say that, how are we doing this? And it's important to understand this when we look at 5 verse 26, because it's not just the Apostle Paul saying, do these things and just do it and that's it and don't complain. Genesis 3.16 says there is a radical change within us. We don't want to do this. That's not natural. We, we, we want to fight. We, we want that, that tension. We don't want the unity. 
That's what Genesis 3.16 is saying, that it's broken. So what's changed? Because this is so important for Christian ethics. Yes, there is a call for us to live before the face of God for his honor and glory and to evaluate our lives. But if I just stand up here and say, well, just do it. Just, just do what's being asked of you without telling you how we do this or in the power of how we do this, we'll miss it. That's why Ephesians 5 verse 26 is so important. It's the Lord that is sanctifying you, conforming you to his image. You're doing this in the power of his spirit. So one of the, the brilliant things, and well, around the time of the Reformation, it was a little after the Reformation, Walter Marshall's Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, where he says, if you're not assured of what you have in Christ, you cannot look within yourself. And think about that. If, if we think that, that we have to cultivate our own righteousness and our own strength and, and meet the standard of Christ by our wills, how are we going to fare if we're honest? Well, not very well. And that's what Marshall says. When you understand you are united to your Redeemer, you understand Christ is your Savior. That, that's your starting point, which is where Paul is, is grounding all this. Why submit to your husbands as Christ submits, or as the church submits to Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church, right? So all through this, calling to our attention Christ and his church. So when we understand Christ is our Redeemer, we understand we're united to Christ, joined to him in the power of his Spirit, we're understanding who's at work in us. We understand who's prodding us. I don't know in your Christian life, but I know sometimes you can feel like you're doing great and, and you feel like the Lord's really moved you beyond something. Then all of a sudden the Lord shows you the next thing you got to work on. And it really stinks because you just thought you were doing so great and then you move to the next chapter. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. That's the reality of the Christian life. You, you think, I'm doing great the Lord's given me triumph or victory over this area. Praise be to God. Oh, now I got this stuff to worry about that the Spirit's pushing on me. And that's the assurance that Paul's giving us. God keeps pushing on us. But when we know that Christ is our Redeemer, we have assurance, don't we? So this is not just ethics. It's not just do these things and, and then you'll be happy. I mean, obviously, as we do these things, we will be happy. But we do these things trusting that it's the Spirit at work in us. We do these things looking to Christ, which is what verse 26 is telling us, sanctifying us, cleansing us. This is that internal washing, new desires that, that come upon us. Speaking of regeneration is what Paul is saying. That as we live this out, it's a joy because we're actually conforming to how God has created us to live. And as we conform to this, we're conforming to his purpose, and it's the Lord who's at work within us. So I want to just remind us that in this section, it's not just the Apostle Paul giving us some happy guidelines to marriage. We have to know the redemptive historic context. We don't actually want to do this. This is not who we are. But by the grace of God, we recognize this is honoring unto God, we desire to do this for his honor and glory. This is part of his cleansing work that's going on within our lives. That we are his redeemed saints who sojourn under the sun. 
So when, when we hear this exhortation, it's not just, uh, just do this. Understand the purpose of why Christ came. It's to redeem, to cleanse, to sanctify. As we moved on, to present the church in splendor, to put on the new garments so that we arrive at glory. So the Apostle Paul is not saying this is necessarily easy, but he's saying that as we sojourn under the sun, set apart unto the Lord, as the spirits had work within us, we continue to meditate upon these gospel promises. We humble ourselves, coming before the Lord, recognizing life is only found in him. And so we have to see this cleansing, this internal washing that's going on, that, that it's a sanctification, it's also this internal new blessing that we have, and we make progress as we sojourn under the sun as the Lord's redeemed. So now we still haven't really touched on the sacrament and the word, have we? We've kind of gone around it, we've talked about sanctification, we've talked about the exhortations and the ethics of the Christian life. It's very important. We look at Ephesians 5 verse 26, there's that reminder word and uh, water or, or washing that's going on. And when we hear this and, and we hear the Belgic Confession remind us, what does it tell us? The Belgic Confession says, by means of which God works in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, referring to the sacraments. So the Lord is refreshing us, nourishing us through the sacraments. There, there is something that the Lord is doing here. And when we look at this, we say, okay, so when Paul says this in Ephesians 5, verse 26, by the washing of water with the word. Now, there's a debate. As you can imagine, theologians do these sorts of things. I don't know why, but anyway, the, the two schools of thought beyond this are pretty simple to understand. One school of thought takes the washing as referring to a cultural washing. So it would be uh, basically the bride getting ready uh, for the, the wedding and making sure that she's presented in that radiance and beauty uh, that's going on. So it's that special washing, not necessarily even a, a Jewish ceremonial washing, but basically what would happen as a bride gets prepared for the wedding. Uh, just that cleansing, that, that process, you know, the beautification process. We can relate to that too in our day and age. You think of the bride getting the makeup and having the dress and having everything perfect and, and the church arranged and those sorts of things, right? We, we have this same sort of thing going on. Now, to try and bolster that argument, as you can imagine, I'm not persuaded by this argument, but to try and bolster it, um, it is true that this is not a word that's used very common in the New Testament, and it's not a word that's always used in terms, or really explicitly, I would say it's never explicitly for uh, baptism. We find one other instance of it in the New Testament, and the instance is in Titus 3 verse 5, where Paul says to Titus, it's by the washing of regeneration. And so people say, well, this isn't literally baptism because we want to say baptism is more than regeneration, people argue. So if it's more than regeneration, Titus 3 verse 5 is not just speaking of baptism. The other places we find this used in Scripture would be in the Septuagint. And the Septuagint, as you remember, is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. 
Uh, the places we find this in the Septuagint are two references to the Song of Solomon. If you want to flatter your wives, you, you can try this, this line that Solomon uses. Uh, in the Song of Solomon 4, verse 2, he speaks of the literal washing of the ewes, right? So it's the, the sheep, after they get sheared, they come up out of the water with a washing. And he compares that to his wife's teeth. So I don't know. Uh, maybe if your wife is down, you can try and use this flattery and see if, if she appreciates it or not. I don't know. Uh, the same wording is repeated in 6, verse 6. I'm personally not going to try it, but you can tell me the results. Uh, but that's the other places where we find this, right? So it is referring literally to washing. So now when, when I look at this, say, okay, so what do we do with this? Because obviously I'm, I'm hinging the word and sacrament argument on this verse, uh, so I better have a pretty good argument to, to persuade you. But looking at this, what, what do we do with this language? Well, first of all, I would argue... If you look at the church fathers and even Honer, who's probably makes the most persuasive case in his commentary, it's uh, very deep, it's very detailed when he goes through all the grammar, um, so I don't know if you're going to necessarily read this in your spare time, but anyway, cutting through all the technical stuff that he uses, he's very dogmatic that this is dealing with just a washing and the bridal washing, it goes through all the historic texts and the Greek documents and all that. But I'm not persuaded, not only because the church fathers, so we, we can go way back in church history and see the church fathers using uh, Ephesians 5, verse 26, and ancient liturgies uh, referring to baptism. So there is a historic precedent of this. And again, it's not just because there's a historic precedent that it's right. Calvin also sees this as a baptism. So there we go. Just kidding. The reality is... Even Calvin sees this as a baptism, and we say, okay, so why is Calvin, why did the church fathers see it this way, and why are more modern commentators not persuaded? Well, more modern commentators would say that as we unearth older documents and understand the traditions of marriage, this is why we would see it as referring to the ceremonial washings of marriage. But I look at it and I say, okay, what about Titus 3 verse 5? I grant baptism is not just limited to regeneration, right? I'm not a biblicist. I don't just take one verse and say this is what it means and in every context this is everything. However, <laughs> baptism does symbolize new birth, doesn't it? And it symbolizes regeneration. That's part of its significance. You can't be delivered from death if you're not regenerate, right? That's that's the beauty of regeneration. It's the Lord giving us new birth, new life. That's why Nicodemus is so confused in John 3. But I'm born of Abraham. I'm a Pharisee. I'm of the right tradition. How can you say I need to be born again? How, how can I be of a different genealogical line? Christ is saying, you're not understanding me. You need to be born from above. So baptism symbolizes the reality that God is serious about being born from above. So Titus 3 verse 5, even though it doesn't literally say baptism, the concept of baptism is there. What's Paul essentially saying to Titus? You're born again. You come to church. You profess Christ. Uh, looking at us from the outside. Now, of course, he's not judging the heart. He's not saying definitively everyone's born again. But he's saying in terms of us coming together as a church, wanting to worship, well, what is that fruit of? 
Well, that's fruit of being regenerate, right? That, that's fruit of saying, I love Christ, and the only way we're truly going to love Christ is if we're born from above. And so the Apostle Paul, as he writes to Titus, he's saying, live this out. You think about what Paul is saying to the Ephesian church. What's the symbolism as we've kind of gone around with the union with Christ, and we talked about the union of Christ and the church. We've talked about the, the full glorification and sanctification. How does that come about? In the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, as you are indwelt by God himself, united to your Savior, live these out. You have new life. You're not living according to the domain of death and sin and brokenness. Orient yourself to the domain of life, which is what baptism symbolizes ultimately, isn't it? The movement of going down into the sea, facing death, emerging triumphant, victorious. How are we victorious? It's not by the life I live in and of myself. It's not the life you live in and of yourself. We are only victorious in Christ Jesus. So the language then of Ephesians 5 verse 26 is very important. Because it's telling us that this washing of water is inviting us to think back to our baptism. That's the invitation. Think about it. He's saying the church has been baptized, set apart unto the Lord. And he's saying, he's inviting us to think about the implications of that. And the clearest implication we have of a communal people being set apart unto the Lord is Israel and the Egyptians. That's what Paul's calling to our attention. We are the church, the people on the side of the victorious sea. Not swallowed by the sea, but those who have passed through the sea of death, standing on the banks singing the song of Miriam, praising God for his victorious work, and singing the song of Moses, and not like the Egyptians. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, think about the implications of this. When you see a baptism, think about the implications of that. You have moved from death to life in your Redeemer. And how else do we do this? Because we might say, see, it's just baptism that really communicates this. When Ephesians 5, verse 26, is not just the washing of the water, but with the Word. So you're seeing the Word and sacrament operating together there. So the Word and sacrament are holding out the same Christ, the same Lord, the same Redeemer, the same one who has set us apart as his people. And so when we think about that language of the Word and, and the Spirit, you go, what does that mean? Well, you think of the high priestly prayer of Christ. What does he say just briefly? There's many references we can go through. But even the, uh, Christ speaking of the Father, saying, keep them in your hand. Sanctify them. Sanctify them in your truth. What is the truth? Your word is truth. Going on. You think of Paul reminding us in Romans 10, verse 8, and, and 17 and 18, the word of God brings, cultivates, Life. You can go on in Ephesians, <clears throat> excuse me, Ephesians 6, verse 17, with the armor of God. The word of God is part of the armor. It's the sword. It's the sword of truth. 
So you start putting this together in what Paul's saying to the church. He's saying, how are we going to get the power to live this out? We think of Genesis 3.16, our broken state, the broken state of marriage. Paul's saying, think back to your baptism. Think back to the reality of the church being cleansed, washed, set apart unto the Lord. Think about the power of the word of God being at work within you. The very gospel promise that you are the Lord's redeemed in living this out. A people who have triumphed through the sea. And when we think about this reality, it's Paul calling to our attention that it is Christ who is doing this. It is Christ who is at work. And again, as we pointed out, the Eastern Orthodox, how they say Calvin's a rationalist. Um, the Roman Catholics don't always value Calvin. In fact, depends on a Roman Catholic. Some orders actually appreciate Calvin now, which is somewhat interesting. Uh, but by and large, historically, there isn't much appreciation for Calvin. And Calvin gives us this important reminder in this text. He says, we must not imagine that washing is performed by the minister or that water cleanses the pollutants of the soul, which nothing but the blood of Christ can accomplish. In short, we must beware of giving any portion of our confidence to the element or to man, for the true and proper use of the sacrament is to lead us directly to Christ and to place all our dependence upon him. Simply stated, Calvin saying the word in sacrament is calling us to see it's the one Christ that gives us life. Baptism is that visible sign of the washing that leads to the ultimate glory of verse 27. But it's the assurance that as we fight the good fight in the power of the Spirit today, we're moving to the place of glory. What was fallen and broken at Eden with sin is now being recaptured in the power of the Spirit as we live this out for the glory of God, even in these broken bodies, these broken vessels that need to be glorified. So how can these merely signs and seals nourish our faith? Why would we use the sacraments? Because the signs and seals hold forth the visible picture of the gospel. This is what Abram needed, as we saw last time. He doubted that God could really bring life from death. Circumcision made that clear. God's going to bring life from death. From a dead, barren couple, if you will, he cultivates life. This, um, the word in sacrament is also calling us to recognize that it is only in Christ we have this life. So as we evaluate ourselves we're evaluating ourselves knowing we are redeemed. That's what Paul wants us to remember. We are redeemed in Christ. The once for all declaration of righteousness has been uttered. We are declared righteous. As we stand before the heavenly courts, we are righteous in our king. And as we conform and live out the gospel. I love how our catechism does this. I think it is so clear and so helpful but how the Heidelberg Catechism goes on to say we do this out of gratitude. So it doesn't minimize the law of God, but it says we do these things out of gratitude, not to complete the work of Christ, not to add to the work of Christ, because it is complete, it is finished, but we do it because we are the Lord's redeemed, 
who walk in the power of the Spirit. As the Apostle Paul uses the sign of baptism to exhort the Ephesian church and us, is by the word and by that washing that we are reminded we are set apart unto the Lord as his redeemed. So let us not look to these signs superstitiously. Let us look to our Redeemer and look to our God, look to our King, and let us recognize that our Redeemer will finish the work that he has started. And as we fight the good fight in the power of the Spirit, this good fight ends in victory. Not because we're so good, not because we're so worthy, but because Christ has triumphed. Let us proceed forward with that as our confidence. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.